Hi, um, well, I guess it's time for another podcast already. Um, it's Sunday night, and I've been home with a cold all weekend, that cold that I got coming back from California last week. Um, I'm running out of uh, After the Siege to read. I'm also running out of After the Siege to write. I've just written another uh, couple hundred words, or, well, a couple thousand words of it, and I'm, I'm getting right into the end stretch. So a couple more of these, and we should be uh, through the whole works. And I guess I'll have to read you something else. Uh, I'm doing a uh, reading and signing tomorrow on Oxford Street here in London at the Borders Books with uh, John Courtney Grimwood and Pat Cadigan. Uh, I hope some of you who are in London will come out and see that. I'm not sure what I'm going to read. I might read a little of this. Uh, and without further ado, uh, back to uh, After the Siege. Six months after she took home the clothes that Anna had given her, Valentine was taken off of ditch digging and put on corpse duty. They were dying like flies, and the zombies fed on them, and unless, unless the meat was disposed of, the zombies would multiply like rats. There was only bread on alternate days now. The hunger was like a playmate or a childhood enemy that taunted her. It woke her in the night like a punch in the gut. The first body she found was missing its ass cheeks. You could find the bodies by the smell, and she was on corpse detail with a boy about her age whose face she never saw because it was covered by a mask. He had a floppy machine pistol that she hoped he knew how to use, because the zombies were everywhere. He'd been hauling meat for weeks, and grunted out little bits and pieces to help her get acquainted. Neither of them exchanged names. What happened to her? You ever see black market meat? The ass is the last part to go when they starve. The mafias take the cheeks and grind them up with some filler, and add flavoring agent and sell them. They used to kill people and take the meat that way, but they don't need to any more. There's enough meat for natural causes. The smell was terrible. It was a woman, and she'd been dead for some time. It was hot out, too. Valentine's mask didn't really seem to help, but when she stuck a lip, a finger under it to scratch her sweaty upper lip, an unfiltered gulp of air went up her nose, and she gagged. They started in the early hours of the morning before the heat got too bad. They slept again for a few hours at noon, then started again mid-afternoon. She was so hungry that she was dizzy. The next corpse was on the fifteenth story of a block of Revolutionary-era flats. No lift in the city had worked in more than a year. They climbed and rested, climbed and rested. There was no question of going straight up. She was too weak to consider it for a second. It was a man. He was big and tall, and even starved out as he was, they could barely lift him. He must have been a giant in life. We'll never carry him down all those stairs, the boy said. Go and open the big window. Valentine obeyed woodenly. She knew that if you couldn't carry the body, you'd have to get out of the building some other way. She knew that. She didn't want to think about what it meant, but she knew it. She'd been, there'd been a corpse one floor down from her flat, and it had taken weeks for the city to dispose of it, and life had been almost unbearable for everyone in the building. And that had been in the winter, when the cold kept the smell down some. So you had to get rid of the body. The window was a revolutionary window. It was marvelous and self-cleaning, and it swung easily open. Forty-five meters below she could see the building's deserted courtyard, and the corpse wagon that the boy drove haltingly through the city streets. Under other circumstances she might have felt show-offy and ostentatious, riding in a car while everyone else walked, but she knew that no one envied her her ride in the corpse wagon. Take his ankles. With the mask on, the boy looked like a horse, and she knew she did, too. On the one chair that hadn't been burned for fuel the previous winter, the boy had stacked up the few possessions the corpse had. A ring, 
a lighter, a clasp knife, a little set of headphones with their charge lights showing red. She picked up the body by the ankles. The boy had him by the shoulders. When they alley-ooped it up off the floor, the body let out a tremendous evil fart. It wasn't the first time a body had done that on that day, but it was the loudest and evilest of all the farts. Its ankles were dirty, and the smell of its feet and its fart combined into a gray, fuggy miasma that she could smell through the mask. "'You should smell his feet,' she said. "'You should smell his breath,' the boy said. They dragged the body to the window, and one, two, three, swung it out and into the wide world. She watched it spin away, fascinated and wordless. Then it hit the ground, and the sound, and the way it looked, and the splash, and the blood... There were tears streaming down her face, fouling her mask. She stepped out into the corridor and ripped the mask off and faced the wall, groaning. It gets easier later, the boy said, tugging her arm. He was right. But they needed shovels to get the body into the corpse wagon. Some of the bits had gone a long way off, and she had to carry them before her on the spade end of the shovel. His viscera gleamed like an accusation at her. She lived on the fourteenth floor. When her time came... She'd go out the window, too. Two years after the siege began, she awoke deaf. Mata was shaking her vigorously, and her lips were moving, but there was no sound. Valentine listened hard and made out a distant underwater sound that she couldn't place, though it was familiar. Mata was thin and hard now, and slept with a gun, and only came home for a few hours at a time. She was taking lots of different pills and vapors, and they made her a little jumpy. Valentine wondered if the pills had rendered her mother mute, before she realized that she couldn't hear anything. She tapped her ear. "'I can't hear,' she said. Her mother didn't appear to understand. She still shook Valentine hard. "'I'm deaf, Mata,' she said. She shook her head and tugged her earlobes. She was scared now, and she sat up. She wiggled a fingertip in her ear, which was very greasy. Not even the sound of her finger in her ear carried back to her mind stone deaf. She was breathing heavily, but that happened a lot. The hunger made her weepy, and sometimes she cried for no reason. Sometimes, in the middle of a sentence, she had to sit down and stare at the sky while her tears rolled down her throat until she felt able to go on again. She swallowed her breathing. "'Mata,' she said. Her mother made a stay-there gesture and repeated it and mouthed the words at her slowly and obviously. She nodded to show she understood." She was supposed to be carrying bodies that day. You could get bread every day if you carried bodies. One piece on alternate days from the city, one piece from the black market in exchange for the loot you could find in the flats of the starved. There was a new girl that Valentine was training, too. The boy was long gone. He tried to touch her breast, not just once either, and she had reported him. When the supervisor confronted him, he went crazy and tried to attack the supervisor, and the supervisor sent him to the front to carry ammunition, where, Valentine supposed, he was still working, unless he was dead. She didn't much care which. But she wanted bread. The crèche had shut down a few months before, but Trover had some little boys he played with, and they sometimes came home with a little food, and he was always careful to share with her, though she was sure that he didn't share everything. She didn't either. No one did. Mata had a little stash of dried fish under her pillow. Valentine almost never raided it, though she could have. Trover was looking at her. She tugged her earlobes. "'I'm deaf,' she said. She thought she might be speaking very loudly, but she couldn't tell. Trover went out of the flat without looking back at her. She waited for Mata, but the day crept by, and Mata didn't return. The more she didn't return, the more Valentine worried. 
She cried some, then tried to sleep. She sucked pebbles for the hunger and drank the cistern dry. She carried the chamber pot downstairs, but the world in silence was so scary that she practically ran back to the flat once she tipped it out into the reeking collection point. She had, fin uh, she had finally gotten to sleep when Mata returned. Mata mouthed something in her slow, deliberate wor words, but she couldn't make it out. Mata repeated it, and then again. She didn't get any of it, but Mata's expression was clear. No doctors would help her. She hadn't expected them to. No doctors could help her, as far as she was concerned. She knew exactly what had gone wrong. Her hearing aids had failed. Everything from the golden years after the revolution failed. Old people died when their artificial hearts or kidneys seized up and withered. Lifts didn't work. Printers didn't work. They'd nearly all died the day the siege began. The hospitals couldn't print, dr tr couldn't print drugs. The sky cars fell out of the sky. Nothing worked. Nothing would ever work again. Everything fell apart. Her earring aids were of that same magical stuff as everything else from before the, from the revolution, so it followed that they would die too. Mata must have known this. That's probably what she was saying. If Valentine concentrated, she could recall her mother's voice and have it say the words. It's okay, Mata, she said. She knew she was shouting. It's okay. Mata cried, and she cried, but she put herself to sleep as soon as she could, and when she thought Trevor and Mata were sleeping too, she took out her small wizard light and made her way down the silent stairs into the silent streets. She walked cautiously toward the wizard's flat. She was deaf, but it felt like she was a little blind too. Without her hearing, she couldn't see right or balance right. She thought about a life without ears. She'd probably have to go back to digging, since you couldn't haul bodies without a partner, and you needed to be able to talk, even if it was only to say alley-oop. She walked like a drunkard, keeping to the darkest streets, where only the night wardens, where even the night wardens stayed away. She only let the tiniest glow escape from her little light. She was about to turn into the main shopping street when a strong hand seized her and jerked her back into the alley. Her first thought was zombie, and she screamed involuntarily, and a fist connected with her mouth, loosening one of the teeth next to her gap. Her head rang like a bell, the first sound she'd heard since that morning. The little bead fell out of her hand, and it rolled into a crack of the pavement, crazily illuminating the scene and her attacker. The alley was filthy and covered in drips, drifts of rubble, and the man who'd hit her was a young civil defense warden with acne that looked chemically induced. He didn't smell good. He smelled very bad, sick maybe, unclean like everyone, and worse. He was no zombie. He didn't smell good enough. She saw his mouth work and knew he was saying something to her. I'm deaf, she said, and she knew she said it too loud because he recoiled, and then he punched her harder in the mouth than before. She fell down this time, and he dragged her roughly by one arm from the light. She was cried out and weak from hunger, and she understood what was coming next when he threw her down and grabbed the collar of her shirt and ripped it away from her, and then gave her bra the same treatment. She was dazed from the knocks on her head, but she knew what was coming. Valentine's mother was a soldier. She'd been taught to kill. She'd taught Valentine to kill. Valentine never left the house without a clasp knife. The knife she'd taken from the corpse she'd thrown out of the fifteenth-story window some unknowable time before. The knife was in her back pocket. She watched the boy's silhouette work at the clasp of his trousers while she stole a hand behind her and slowly, slowly took out the knife. She let herself make silent, choking, dazed sounds. 
She knew what was coming next, but he didn't. But as he knelt down and reached out for the fastener on her trousers, she showed him what was next. She took two of his fingers and just missed opening her own belly. She tried to jerk his ar- he tried to jerk his arm away, but she had him by the wrist before he could, and she pulled him down on top of her, making sure that the knife was free of the clinch, free to slip around behind him and take him once, twice, three times in between his ribs, then again into his kidneys. Seeing the splatted corpses she tossed out of the windows had given her a very keen idea of how anatomy worked. She had never felt so clear-headed as she did at this work, and the boy on her thrashed, and it, and it got her and got her a couple good knocks on the head, and his blood soaked her bare chest and her face and her short head and her short hair. But she worked the knife some more, going at the throat and then the face. She let him go, and he rolled away, and she pounced on him. She worked with the knife. Soon he stopped moving. Her shirt was in rags, but the bra clasp still worked once she bent it back. The pea-light was easy to find. It glowed like a beacon. She picked it up and made her way to the wizards. "'I'm deaf,' she said to Anna. Anna looked the same at first, and then Valentine saw that she was holding a cane and leaning on it heavily. She knew that she was half-naked and covered with gore, but she also knew that Anna would not be fazed by this. She squeezed past her and into the brave, swooping, just-printed sitting-room. She fixed herself some coffee and poured a glug of rum into it while Anna stared at her with some wordless emotion. "'I'm deaf,' she repeated, setting down some coffee and rum for Anna. "'I could use a shirt, too. And the wizard, of course.' She remembered how to use the cooker from the pre-revolutionary days, and it was like or from the revolutionary days, and it was like remembering something from a dream. She poked at it, ignoring Anna, and got it to produce a plate of goose liver dumplings in white gravy. She rinsed the blood off her fingers and then ate the dumplings with them. Anna stared at her for a long moment, then limped out of the room and fetched the wizard. He said something that she couldn't hear. Everyone in the city was old, even the young people, wrinkled with dust in the wrinkles and missing teeth and torn clothes. The wizard was forever young. He was clean and scarred and unscarred and well-fed as ever. "'Print me some clothes, wizard,' she said. "'These ones are covered in blood, and I'm deaf, so don't bother talking to me.' The wizard stared at her. She ate a dump dumpling and licked the gravy off her fingers. Her stomach had been in flutters since waking up deaf, a not entirely unpleasant counterpoint to her constant painful hunger. The gravy soothed her stomach. The dumpling settled it. The pain retreated. She was deaf. She was a murderess. But there was food, and it was good. Better than no food, anyway. The wizard brought her a pile of warm, printer-fresh clothes. "'Your printers never stopped working, did they?' she said. She was sure she was talking very loudly, and she did not give a festering shit. Our printers stopped working the morning of the siege. Everything did. Everything stops working. That's the Infowar. The Infowar is probably what did for my hearing aids. They were supposed to last ten years, but it's hardly been two. I'm taking a shower now, she said. You can write me an answer if you'd like. I promise to read it afterward. She took herself to the bathroom and let the shower wash her. There were some tears in her head somewhere, but they couldn't find their, their way to her eyes. That was all right. It was a war, after all. She dressed in fine printer-fresh clothes and burped, burped a printer-fresh belch. The gravy taste wafted gasily into her mouth. The wizard had rolled up one of the sofas and unrolled a big screen in its place, the kind of thing she used to love to play games on in the dreamlike fantasy of yore. 
You're deaf? She nodded. I have hearing aids from a bomb. They weren't working when I got out of bed this morning. No warning. They went like that. She snapped her fingers. Some movement caught the corner of her eye and she spun around. There were four more people in the living room, people she hadn't met before, though she assumed that they belonged to the distant voices she'd heard on her earlier visits. They had the well-fed look of Anna and the wizard, and a couple of them were obviously foreign. The documentarians. One of them was pointing a camera at her. She bared her gap-toothed grin at the, at the camera and faked a step toward it. The camera woman cringed back, and she laughed nastily. Your cameras work. Your printers work. You're not losing the info war the way we do. That's because there's a war to build. Th there's a way to build things that resist the info war agents, right? That's why the enemy trench busters don't fail the way our weapons do. The wizard and Anna conversed briefly. Their heads pointed away from her. She grabbed the camera from the startled camera woman and pointed it at them. I just want to get a recording of what you're saying now, so once my hearing comes back, I'll be able to listen. You don't mind, do you? She laughed again and poked her tongue out through the gap in her teeth. All her teeth were loose now, and running her tongue along the back of them made them wiggle in a way that was part tickle, part hurt. The wizard got the idea. He made a keyboard appear on the screen and prodded at it. It's not quite what you think, Valentine. Sure, what do I know? But you've got something, don't you? Anna nodded. Can you fix my hearing? Anna nodded again. You could try to kill me while you, while you perform surgery, couldn't you? Neither of them said anything. I'm booby-trapped. She wasn't, but it had been known to happen. When I die, boom! She realized that this lie might be too extravagant. Who'd booby-trap a starved, gap-toothed girl? My mother arranged it! She thought back to the cine. The food she'd eaten helped her think the way it always did, making her realize what a cloud of fuzz-headed hunger she usually floated through. I've left a full description of your operation in a sealed envelope to be opened in the event of my death. That was better. She should have gone with that in the first place. She couldn't tell if they believed her. Anna was shaking her head. You've got a doctor here, or someone like a doctor. Whatever's been done to your leg, Anna, a doctor did that. Anna pointed at the woman from whom Valentine had snatched the camera. Valentine passed it back to her. Sorry about that. Okay, that's tonight's installment. Uh, that was a good one, I think. Um, like I say, coming up towards both the ending of the reading and the ending of the story. It's a race to see which one happens first. My apologies for the somewhat uh, muzzy quality of my own voice. I'm, uh, as I say, I've got the killer flu. Um, talk to you in a couple of days. I hope I'll see some of you in Oxford Street tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m., Oxford Street Borders, uh, London, England, uh, Pat Cadigan, me, and Co John Courtney Grimwood. Talk to you later.